Hello, and welcome back to Kern Account. I'm your host, Clay Lowry, the Executive Vice President here at the Institute of International Finance. On Current Account, I try to talk about what I see as the most important current issues in international finance and economics, while providing my own U.S. politics and policy angles on these different issues when it is relevant. This week, I'm actually recording from Marrakesh, Morocco, where the IIF has been hosting its annual membership meeting. This coincides with the IMF and the World Bank, which is holding their annual meeting at the exact same time. Last week, we previewed the annual membership meeting with our chief economist, Robin Brooks. And this week, we're going to do something slightly different. We're going to actually try to do almost what I would call real-time updates with some of our key people here at the IIF on some of the core issues that are being discussed in our meetings, the annual membership meeting, but also by the IMF, by the World Bank, by the G20, by the Financial Stability Board, which is known as the FSB. And so let me just kick that off. And we've had good conversations here at the IIF with people like Klaus Knott, who's the chairman of the FSB. He's also the president of the Dutch Central Bank. Myri McGuinness, who's the commissioner from the European Union. Ravi Menon, who's the managing director of the Monetary Authority of Singapore and many, many more. And that's just kind of touching on the official sector. We've also had some excellent private sector folks who know a lot about these issues. But let me first start off with talking about what we call regulatory affairs here at the IIF. And I want to talk to Martin Bohr. Martin is the Senior Director for Regulatory Affairs. So Martin, first of all, thanks for stopping by. And secondly, let's kind of dig right in. There's a lot of issues that are being discussed that are kind of classic financial regulatory matters. And so maybe we'll start off with kind of maybe a table setting, which is about risk. We think about regulation for the risk in the financial system. But of course, risk can come from lots of different angles. So what have you been hearing from your own conversations, from, from some of the presentations, conversations with private sector actors, hallway conversations, what have you, on kind of where are some of the key risks in the financial sector coming from? Thanks, Clay. And it's great being here. Um, geopolitical risk was a really big concern already last year after the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. And at that point, a lot of financial sector participants were trying to figure out what it meant for the financial system, what it meant for their own institutions. And now, of course, we're in a different situation where a few days ago, there was a big attack on uh, Israel. So you have those two political issues. And then thirdly, there's been a growing fragmentation between the U.S. and China and also between other blocs. So you're seeing more and more geopolitical risks. There's a lot of assumptions and modeling in terms of what does this all mean? Where can all these things go? And that uncertainty, of course, impacts financial institutions. At the same time, after the invasion of Ukraine and of the pandemic, there's been a lot of economic impacts in terms of banks having to take uh, provisions, and that's led uh, to credit losses. So banks are also looking at credit losses. And of course, climate risk continues to be a big topic. And then there's a lot of other non-financial risk, which have been mentioned by regulators and by the private sector. And those would include, you know, the risk of cloud or cyber or third-party risk, all these non-financial risks. What's also interesting, I think, is that we're also hearing from 
risk executives that all these different risks are interconnected. And it's difficult to try to manage how all these risks fit into each other. So if you just had to deal with one risk, say, that would already be something you know that, that you really have to focus on and manage. But if you have multiple risks at once, that adds new levels of risks to the system. Okay. Thank you very much. And so let me talk about the issue that kind of from the policymaker's standpoint or regulatory standpoint, we have not actually had a conversation yet on current account about it, but the Federal Reserve has been working on what a lot of people have called the Basel III endgame. We don't have time for us to describe and what exactly all that means. But what it really is supposed to be is about how do financial institutions from the United States, since it's coming from the Fed, how much capital they should hold and what are the types of way they should hold it. And it has global implications because Basel III is a standard that is set out. And so that has been a fairly big part of the conversations, trying to think about what do all these different approaches on how to get to an end game on this capital standards really mean. Can you kind of go through what are you hearing? There clearly are concerns about this, but maybe there's some other issues that you've picked up on. Yeah, that's right, Clay. Banks all over the world operate under the Basel Capital Standards on prudential capital, and as you say, how much capital they need to hold to manage their risks on their books. And as you say, it's a standard, but it's also a minimum standard. So the jurisdictions who all implement Basel, they can also go further. So it's a minimum standard, has a big impact. And since the financial crisis, they've been looking at Basel III, which is obviously a long time ago. And now we're really in the final stages of Basel III in the US, in the EU, in Japan, in the UK. And the different jurisdictions, of course, are implementing it through their own regulatory and uh, legislative systems. And so we're seeing that in some jurisdictions, it's already been sort of pre-implemented. And then in other jurisdictions, there's still a consulting, including in the U.S. And so this has sort of created an unlevel playing field in some ways in terms of timing, whereby some of the jurisdictions are wondering, you know, what are my competitors actually going to end up with and how does that impact me? And then there's, of course, also content. So if some jurisdictions decide to go really a lot further than Basel or to do less than is asked and that they had agreed upon, that also creates fragmentation. So Basel III is really a good example of the fragmentation that financial institutions see more generally across the globe when it comes to regulation. So at the moment, it's really about timing, who's going to implement it when. We've already seen at the UK has pushed out its own implementation date to 2025 to try to match with the U.S., and also what's going to be in it. And so the financial system, the big banks, especially that fall under Basel III, have been trying to estimate how is it going to impact them, how is it ultimately going to impact their loan books and their credit. And so it's a really important issue. And at these meetings, there have been a lot of uh, follow-up meetings trying to figure out how it's all going to fit together. Thank you, Martin. That was very interesting. So you've used the word fragmentation a number of times. And I have said on this podcast in the past, this is one of the core issues at the Institute of International Finance that we deal with. And frankly, global meetings like the IMF and the World Bank, they're always trying to figure out how to limit fragmentation. 
But maybe I should ask you, you know, because it, it does keep popping up, why should anybody care? Okay, so all of the financial institutions are regulated at a country level. That's the jurisdictions that they're in. And yeah, they're global banks, but you know, maybe they can just figure that out. And so what does fragmentation do that creates problems for the global economy and the global financial system? Yeah, that's a great question, Clay. But the financial system is, of course, global. So we see movements of capital and finance all over the world. And it's important that those institutions can speak to each other, work with each other in a very consistent way. And so when the rules are created in different jurisdictions, it's really important that there be rules. Nobody is saying that there shouldn't be rules. But because these internationally active firms are operating in multiple jurisdictions, it makes it a lot easier. It makes the system go more seamless when the rules are consistent and when they're similar. There's also, of course, level playing field issues, like if the rules are stricter in one jurisdiction and then another one, that might lead to regulatory arbitrage. It might lead to, you know, harming that jurisdiction's financial sector. But what it also does is operationally, if firms are cut into little pieces, because in every jurisdiction where they work, they have to hold something behind. They have to keep budget there or people or data. Data localization is a very good example of this fragmentation. But it goes much broader than that with uh, servers and budgets and people. If you need to cut up your institution across jurisdictions, it makes the overall system more fragile and more brittle and maybe more of a risk to financial stability. So for all those reasons, it's not good to fragment the system. It's good to have consistent rules that are the same everywhere that makes it much easier to supervise firms, that makes it much easier for the firms themselves, and it makes the overall financial ecosystem stronger. Well, that was great, Martin, and I want to thank you for that. But now, as I told you, this is a little different this time. I'm going to be moving on, and I'm going to be moving on to talk to our second guest, Jeremy McDaniels. He's the Deputy Director of Sustainable Finance. One of the big issues that is being discussed again at the IMF and World Bank meetings, as well as at our annual membership meetings, is the overall issue of sustainable finance going into lots of different issues. We're not going to have time to go into every single one of them. That would be crazy. But Jeremy, you could probably take the time and tell us a little bit about what are some of the biggest issues that you've been hearing about and some of your key takeaways from this week and you know, kind of what is actually happening in your world. Sure. Thanks so much, Clay. So I think one of the key issues that's framing these uh, these meetings of, of the bank, the fund, also our, our annual meeting here, is really the role of the financial sector in supporting the net zero transition and what the other pieces of that puzzle look like when we're thinking about policy architecture that is economy-wide, touching uh, uh, the, all the key sectors that really need to drive decarbonization you know, at, at, at the kind of the coal face, if you will, when we're thinking about decarbonization of the power sector, the transport sector, uh, buildings, et cetera. Um, and then uh, what would be needed uh, also across the value chain in the economy, including also on the, on the demand side when we're thinking about uh, consumer choices that really are going to drive the, the sort of micro-switchings that add up to quite a lot. Obviously, the transition is, is not a new theme that's discussed in the context of the IMF uh, World Bank meetings, but they're really now a kind of key point on the calendar every year that is building up towards COP, which will be held this year at the beginning of December. I think one of the differences this year when thinking about this notion of the role of the financial sector is, is perhaps 
reflecting on a bit of the growing pains that maybe we can call them that, that, that have been experienced over the past few years um, as the kind of practical realities around the difficulty of aligning to net zero and actually driving decarbonization are coming to light. And I think there may be three things there. The first is financing emissions reductions as opposed to reducing financed emissions. Um, this is perhaps easy to say, but difficult to do, not least for financial institutions that are going to be engaged with really high emitting industries and able to engage with them from a strategic standpoint. So I think one question is, is you know, are different kind of parts of the financial sector more or less aligned to different aspects of that transition capital stack when we think about purely green solutions, really innovative technologies, obviously that's more relevant for sources of capital that have a higher risk appetite, VC, et cetera equities uh, in, in the space when we're thinking about uh, aligned companies and aligning companies. Here we have a lot of policy architecture in the areas of taxonomy that is present in some markets, not in others. But then thinking about the real transition end of all of this, when we're thinking about companies that really need to shift their business models that have set strategies, but also phasing out of certain technologies and assets. That brings me to the, the, the second point, which is that there's really now a proliferation of rules of the road in this space that are going to affect how different stakeholders interpret the role of financial institutions, but also how financial institutions interact with their clients. And so we can see there are product level definitions for things like sustainability linked bonds and loans that would have specific transition KPIs. There's also now um, a, a consultation out uh, from the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero or GFANS that looks at kind of all, all capital that would be on a balance sheet and how it is aligned with those different buckets of the transition capital stack, if we want to call it that. And then finally, there are a whole bunch of, of factors that are coming into play when thinking about transition planning by financial institutions and also corporates and how these interact. I think the last point, which is, I think, over all of these meetings is just how the transition is going to proceed in an era of ongoing polycrisis, if we want to call it that. Obviously, absolutely terrible developments happening uh, in the Middle East at the, at the moment, um, uh, ongoing war in Ukraine, continued economic headwinds, price volatility, etc. So figuring out how to balance these multiple priorities when we're thinking about addressing shocks to cost of living, ensuring that doesn't impede support for the transition uh, in civil society, while also delivering you know, policy ambition. It's really one of the, the key themes I would see. So if we think about that all together, then we've had a lot of great conversations here uh, at, at, our, at our annual meetings. And we've also just released a, a paper from the IIF on behalf of our membership that sets out the financial sector's view on, on these questions of its role, these multiple sets of rules of the road, and how ultimately credibility in this whole agenda around transition finance can be ensured. Thank you, Jeremy. That was actually a great covered in a very short period of time. So one thing I would say that you, I sometimes hear, and maybe you can go a little further into this, and you start touching upon it, and it's controversial sometimes, is there credibility to what the private sector is saying? Or, by the way, maybe is there credibility to what the official sector is saying the private sector needs to do? So I don't mean to mix things up, but maybe you can explain that a little bit more. Sure, thanks. I mean, really, really hitting the, the, the nail on, on, on the head there. I mean, this is one of the key open questions that we uh, have been uh, discussing with our memberships identified in the board is ultimately, how should the credibility of a transition plan, either from a corporate entity or a financial institution, be uh, evaluated. And I think it's important to note that there are many different frameworks out there that have set out perhaps how a transition plan should be organized, what it should contain, etc. But there are many different views on 
the aspects of a plan which would perhaps inform evaluation or decisions on credibility in a given area. And we've identified four that are perhaps relevant from the financial institution perspective as, as users of plans, but it's also relevant uh, when, when thinking about uh, the disclosures of plans. The first is the scientific integrity of a transition plan and its goals. I mean, is this aligned with something from a reputable scientific authority in terms of sectoral pathways for decarbonization? The next uh, element is technical feasibility. Does the plan rely on technologies which are available today that just need to be implemented at scale, or does it rely on a whole array of, of new innovations which are at very early stages and are perhaps more uncertain? The third is the economic and financial dimensions of all of this. You know, can this be sensibly delivered within the scope of the capital available to the financial institution, what needs to be raised, et cetera. And then finally, the strategic element of this, when you're thinking about the competitive position of a firm, you know, does it have a plan which is very much following that of its, its competitor and therefore will be you know, fighting for market share, or is it kind of developing into, into new areas where it can, where it can grow? Um, and so looking at this, we see this is one of the key debates where quick resolution is, is going to be beneficial for everyone in the market and also uh, other stakeholders. Because having a whole array of views on credibility, basically a, a, a bunch of you know, checklists or you know, a grading rubric for different aspects of a plan will obviously lead to different interpretations of the credibility. So one group of stakeholders may say, yes, you know, we can believe in this, we can trust this, this, this sh should be considered as robust in the market, whereas a different group may uh, consider that certain aspects are, are not as robust. And this obviously raises the issue of the kind of perception of greenwashing, which makes the detection of real greenwashing in a way more complicated. Because if we had a consistent set of rules and understanding for what is credible, that obviously then will enable the market to police itself much more effectively and integrity to build. Moving on to the second part of your question, I think ultimately the credibility of a government's transition strategy is what is going to make or break investor confidence. And I think we're seeing that already with some uh, jurisdictions starting to per perhaps roll back a little bit uh, on, on commitments. I think this has rightfully received very negative reactions uh, from all stakeholders, from investors, and we cannot see further backsliding. This, this ultimately is damaging for the financial sector, damaging for the real economy, damaging for uh, social outcomes. So ultimately, policy certainty, as we've been hearing throughout today and just on my panel just before this, ultimately, policy certainty is, is critical to ensure that companies can plan effectively over a timeline that's necessary to enable the innovation cycle to you know, move forward. It also uh, enables, you know, the the process of making the business case much, you know, much easier. Ultimately, when you're thinking about understanding how policies are are going to affect uh, the viability of a, of a given investment or or development of a business strategy, so credibility of of government's plans uh, in terms of NDCs, but also shorter term goals, and seeing how those fit into economy wide incentive strategies like we're seeing with the IRA. This is perhaps the key issue that we're seeing because definitely those economy-wide policy frameworks like uh, the IRA, like uh, in Japan, uh, in the EU, China, elsewhere, they are having demonstrated impacts on, on the low-carbon transition and that needs to be really accelerated with the support of the financial sector. Thank you very much, Jeremy, and good luck with the rest of the program and the rest of your week. Thanks so much, Clay.
Now, for the last part of our live updates, I want to talk, talk to Jessica Rainier. Jessica is our Managing Director for Digital Finance. And I talked to her last February, or this February, I guess, on CBDCs and digital assets. That's one of the issues that came up during uh, the conversations this week in Marrakesh. But I also want to talk to her about artificial intelligence, which is something that we also covered earlier this year. But Jess, maybe you can kind of give us some of your key takeaways. Let's start with the digital assets and CBDCs, and then we'll move on to the artificial intelligence issues. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, So if I think about where we are right now um, versus this week last year, I'd say some of the biggest observations that I have are that digital assets, tokenization, central bank digital currencies, all this kind of big category of topics is actually gaining what I would call some collective momentum or movement. It focused on specific platforms that would combine multi-currency and multi-asset systems instead of kind of looking at them as totally independent projects by one jurisdiction and another jurisdiction and a sort of sandbox attempt over here and something crypto over there. More an overall effort to think about these topics as truly international financial infrastructure. And if we think about those topics in the way of of thinking about infrastructure that has to work across borders globally for the world, then we start thinking about things that impact more countries and are common to other countries and standards for those things. And that has more the long-term staying power. So I just call it kind of the, the interesting point 12 months later is more of a mature point in the arc of normal innovation, where you start with lots of little projects to the left, to the right, up and down, and you eventually begin coalescing around something that looks like a bigger staying power um, movement. And I'd say it's the early part of that, for sure, lots to work through, but definitely more mature 12 months later. And actually, that's a really interesting segue, because you said 12 months later where, where we are so now. Something that was not much of a conversation at last year's uh, annual membership meeting was the rise and importance of artificial intelligence and what it means for the financial sector. That has definitely been a much, much bigger part of the conversation. But maybe you can talk about some of your takeaways on that issue. Absolutely. So the rise of the focus on artificial intelligence, machine learning, um, large language models, big focus um, really midway through this year um, up until now, and certainly of the IMF World Bank meetings here. And you've seen it on a a couple of different fronts. Um, Some of them have been very jurisdictionally focused, just we're here in Africa, and so thinking about in Africa how we can apply um, some of those technologies to achieve specific goals or objectives that might be more specific to this continent. And then others on a more global scale of thinking just what, what is the impact of these technologies overall to a particular industry here, particularly financial services, since we're here with the IMF and the World Bank. But from from that standpoint, I'd say the common theme across the board has been um, hearing the words data, data, data. And this is where, you know, the IF certainly has done a lot of work on data over time, on data sharing, on data localization on data privacy um, and just data management, all of these things. And what you're seeing now is a more, um, I'd say, a, a tangible way 
for the average person to grasp all of those other kind of complex pieces of why we care so much about data policy is because we have a more tangible way to interact with it, a human interface to interact with it in AI now. And all of those come together in how we think about AI policy. So on a high level, if we're going to talk about AI policy, we have to talk about data policy. You cannot talk about AI policy without considering data policy. No, Jess, that was excellent. Probably should just ask one more time, is any other key issues you hit? Obviously, I know you've covered probably 10 or 15 other issues this week, but very core ones that seem to be really getting people's attention. Yeah, sure. I think uh, whether issues or just aspects of the conversations, I'd say um, I've definitely heard because of this convergence of issues on data, those are bringing conversations that traditionally might happen in a, a digital conversation, say digital public infrastructure topics that were discussed this week, uh, especially here in Africa, and then sustainable finance topics that were discussed and brought up data. And so where there have been kind of focuses on, on what have been seen to be different topics previously, you see some of these conversations and issues, policy issues, converging around the common question of data access and data management. So I think there, there's going to be more uh, work to be done, I guess, at the intersection of those issues instead of treating them as completely separate um, issues going forward. And then one other observation I'd make is that the importance of really putting our critical thinking hats on going forward as as we talk about any one of these topics, because what's very easy to hear um, in policy forums and conferences is to hear kind of high-level talking points that get repeated, but those are, they're easy to grasp, and they're, they're easy to write down and repeat somewhere, but they may not be the talking points that actually apply directly to the objective that you're trying to accomplish. And so we really have to think about what is one jurisdiction trying to accomplish or what's another jurisdiction trying to accomplish and is the talking point that they're using actually applicable to the objective that they are actually driving forward or is it just kind of the high level one that's getting kicked around currently in in conferences so I'll, I'll leave it at that so in many respects Jess's last point actually did something that I, I kind of want to think about which is we wanted to hit on those three issues that I mentioned financial regulatory matters sustainable finance and digital finance. But as Jess said, all of those work together. There is no real dividing line. For the purposes of this podcast, we divided them up, but there is no real dividing line. And that goes to the broader point of the IMF World Bank and the AMM meetings. There's a lot of other issues that were being discussed. Last week, we covered a lot of the global economic issues. But of course, there was very, very intensive conversations about debt restructuring, intensive conversations about multilateral development bank reform, and actually probably most importantly, overarching all of this is geopolitical risks that are out there. And this comes in in the context of the tragedies that had happened in Israel very recently. There isn't any great way of summing up what was a huge week for us at the IIF, but let me give you my three, two, one. That's the three things that I learned from having my conversations with my colleagues. Two things I'm looking forward to in my one sports fact. My three main takeaways were that the global regulatory system, which we used to worry was fragmenting, and seeing that it was starting to come together, 
That fragmentation seems to be rising once again. Next, when it comes to sustainable finance, there seems to be a credibility issue. I thought Jeremy put it very interestingly. There's a credibility issue about the private sector and what their transition plans are going to be like. But there's also a credibility of the official sector and whether or not the frameworks and regulatory matters that they're putting in place make sense for a private sector trying to make those plans work. And lastly, I thought the importance of artificial intelligence and I thought Jess's point of that was really important. You cannot have artificial intelligence policy until you talk about data policy. The two things that I'm looking forward to, since we just came off a very, very significant event here in Marrakesh, are two events that are going to be happening that are very related to these issues. The first is going to be taking place in Singapore in mid-November. It's called the Singapore FinTech Festival. A number of the areas, particularly the ones that Jess was talking about, will be covered. And then next, at the end of November, in early December, there's going to be the COP28 Summit that's going to be taking place in Dubai, which will cover many of the areas that Jeremy was discussing earlier in the podcast. And now my one sports fact. Continuing the theme of our annual meeting taking place in Marrakesh, I wanted to focus on a sport I've, I've mentioned a lot on current account soccer. And that's mainly because of the success that the country of Morocco has had over the last year. Moroccan success started with the men's team, which made the semifinals of the World Cup last winter. That was the first time an African country had ever made the semifinals. They went on an amazing Cinderella run, beating strong countries like Belgium and Spain and Portugal before they fell eventually to France. But Morocco's success did not end with its men. It was picked up by their women. The Atlas Lionesses made it to the World Cup for the first time in 2023. And maybe more, more impressively, they were the first team which debuted in a World Cup that actually made it through the round-robin part and made it into the knockout round. During that time, they had to actually beat Colombia and they finished higher in their round than powerhouse Germany. To round off the success, just actually in the last couple of weeks, Morocco, to show that how much of a power it has become in soccer, was awarded the 2030 World Cup alongside Portugal and Spain. And the women's team just received the coach who had led Spain to its first World Cup victory in 2023. Morocco is clearly a country on the rise in soccer, both on the men's side and the women's side. Well, that's going to wrap up this episode of Current Account. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback on the show, and we constantly look to improve and enhance the experience for you, the listener. We can be reached at podcast at IIF.com, and all of our episodes can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening, and goodbye.